Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Forrest. And this is The Crosscut, a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured or trash piece of cinema. And hey, uh, yeah. Hey, uh, we are going to introduce our guest. Uh, his name, you know him, you love him. He was here before for a uh, probably a less fun movie. <laughs> uh, Devin Landon, welcome back to the show. Hello. I'm, Hello. I'm happy to be back. I had so much fun talking about the Olympics. And, and um, Nazis. And, and Nazis. Yeah, I had more fun talking about the Olympics. Right. But, uh, but yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, talking about today's topic as well. Yeah, yeah. so... Uh, Jesse will kick us off with the news, but uh, it should be noted that Devin is a an expert um, on the LSAT and the GMAT and various uh, teaching. Actually, sorry, Jesse, you're the LSAT. Devin, you're the GMAT. Various. Uh, Devin did all of them. Did yeah, all of them. Devin, Devin did all of them. Devin, Devin did all the tests. De- I did De- Devin and Jesse met many, many, many years ago mm-hmm. teaching for Kaplan. And Jesse, you just did LSAT, right? I only did LSAT. And I did LSAT, GMAT, and GRE. I so, was not proficient enough in my math to feel comfortable teaching math. Sure. Like, could I have gotten a good GRE or GMAT score? Maybe if I had studied or whatever, you know. Right. It's not that hard of math, but um, I would never have felt comfortable actually telling people what they should do with their math. Yeah. I oh. So I, uh, Jesse got me a job at Kaplan. I, t- I taught one class and I was like, no, thank you. I'm all set. But you did a good job. <laughs> I, d- I did fine. Uh, but I got to the math portion. I was demonstrating it on the board and like kind of got like turned around a little bit on the problem. Then I was like, why am I doing the problem? The answer is on the piece of paper. And I just like, that's, uh, went like backwards from the answers. And I was like, this is what you should do. Everyone in class do. If you get lost, like I did just go backwards from the answers. It's easy. I mean, that's it. That's the correct that's answer. The correct. Yeah, that's, that's, the way that's, that's how you do it. It's not as bad as the first time I ever taught an LSAT class where I spent the entire class pronouncing the word indict because mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever heard it. I'd just seen it spelled. And so all these future lawyers, I'm sure, were very, very confident with their choice of uh, class to take. Quite the expertise. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, with that, Jesse, what, uh, we, I don't, I'm, I'm way behind. I actually don't even really know what the news story is this week because my life has fallen apart. So please, please let us know what we're talking about this week. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And uh, I think you were even a little bit confused by the title of the episode, which is law school rankings boycott. We are going to be talking about the LSAT because that is a big part of it, but it's really less about the LSAT generally for this new story. um, And more about the rankings and the admissions process. Hence the reason that we chose legally blonde. Yeah. In general, I am in in general, I am just normally confused. So (laughs) that's a constant state of being for me, but, uh, but yeah, a, uh, it ties in nicely with with the film, which we'll get into in a little bit, but uh, kick us off with the news of the week, baby. All right, let's do it. This month, both Yale and Harvard announced they would be withdrawing from the U.S. News and World Report's rankings of the best law schools in the nation. Colleges and universities have roundly criticized the influential ranking system for decades, claiming that it is both unreliable and skews educational priorities. However, this was seen as possibly the largest challenge to the system to date. So, uh, you know, we all all of us here went to colleges. Uh, (laughs) Did you did you ever care about the ranking of your school when you were looking at uh, where to go? Like, 
I, I don't remember what RPI was. It was in the forties or something, but, uh, do you have any recollection of that being important? I definitely didn't care about the <laughs> of my undergraduate. I went to Florida state, um, is fine. It was, you know, um, it was not a, a factor when I was deciding which school to go to. However, when I was considering law school, which was the reason I took the LSAT and then became an LSAT teacher, I was very much interested in what the rankings were. I mean, even if you're not planning on going to, I think, a top tier, you know, T14 law school, um, still knowing that you're within like the, you know, middle tier or like the top 50 is important. And I, I know that Florida State's law school, for instance, is only recently in the top 50. Um, and they had surpassed, I think U of F that year, um, when I was considering going to law school in Florida. So it was definitely a consideration and, um, something that I was looking at in terms of, you know, trying to balance where could I get the best scholarship opportunity versus, uh, ranking, like trying to even that out. I went to college. I dropped out of college. I went back to college. And the reason I went to the college I went back to, which is a school called Manhattanville, a small liberal arts school uh, in Westchester, about 45 minutes north of New York City. Um, the reason I went there is it was the best school I could drive to from my mom's house. because Manhattanville was, was not in Manhattan? Manhattan. Oh, we we could do an entire podcast on how that happened. But, no, we uh, can't. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Manhattanville... Uh, it was founded by a bunch of nuns mm. in the Manhattanville area of Manhattan and then moved uh, in the mid 20th century to Whitlaw Reed's estate, uh, his summer estate, the former editor of the Herald Tribune, owner and editor of the Herald Tribune, oh. um, because his he died, his wife died, left it to the nuns, they moved the whole school up there. But But to get back to the point of this, it was, I had a great time there. I had a great experience there, but it is never a, you know, highly ranked. Now, that being said, uh, Forrest and I went to the same grad school. That's yep. where, that's right. where we know each other. And, um, I did not go there and I don't think Forrest did because of the ranking. It was a very specific program that we were interested in, but I was very aware of the ranking and yeah. some rankings put Stern, NYU Stern in the top 10. And I liked those better. <laughs> some, some kept them like down in the high teens. I did not like those as much. And although film school rankings are complete nonsense, right. every year they still publish them. And I always want Tish to be ahead of USC. Right. And it kind of like goes back and forth. Does it matter? Probably not, but not I in still any like way. it when it is. Well, so I think the difference with us is like the people who go to USC are very different than the people who go to Tish, both in personality type and what they want. Uh, whereas like the people who go to Yale versus the people who go to Harvard are the same people, right? They, they are ca carbon copies of each other. So for law school, for law school. Sure. Yeah. Although yeah. I think maybe people who go to Stanford or Berkeley versus Yale or Harvard might be different or even Columbia versus Yale or Harvard. Well, ac actually, I, I think that the, the Yale is actually the outlier here. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this in terms of the, uh, what this, what the withdrawing from the rankings actually means. But mm -hmm. Yale, when I was teaching for decades before I was teaching, since I've been teaching the LSAT, Yale is so far and away the number one school. It's not like business school where you kind of get the top three shuffling around. Right. It, it's like Yale is number one. Harvard and Stanford kind of flip flopped two and three, and then mm -hmm. Columbia and NYU, and now I think University of Chicago's in that mix, were like rounded out the top five. But, but Yale, the way that they 
even approach law. I have a friend whose father was a big partner in a law firm uh, in New York City, one of the big firms in New York City when I was growing up. And I remember him telling me, like, they actually, it's not that they wouldn't take a Yale law grad, but they actually liked the Harvard and Columbia and Stanford and NYU grads perhaps even a little better because Yale, they, they, the stereotype is they sit around in these big leather-bound chairs and discuss the philosophy of law. Right. And it's when you sure. want to go become a judge or a senator as opposed to a a, a practicing lawyer, which mm. which Harvard, Stanford, you know, yeah. the rest of the top five do. So people obviously, you know, who want to get into one of those schools would probably be happy with all of them. But I do think that Yale has a slightly different reputation among the community. Good to know. Would have never assumed. I just have a blanket hatred of all of them. So. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. But yeah, so, so sweetheart, uh, the, in the news story, um, did they give any, or what was the uh, reasoning they give, gave for withdrawing from the rankings? Sure. So the, the withdrawing happened, obviously, with both um, Yale and Harvard. Yale went first, but they both um, posted notes to their websites on uh, Wednesday, November 16th. Is Yale uh, going to just keep bringing that up? It's like, we were first. Harvard was first. <laughs> well, they you know, have I think to. They're, they're first. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that there's an important reason why they're first and, and, and also why it had to be Yale and, and Harvard being the first two, which is that these rankings are very important for schools. You know, there is a reason why the schools are so upset by the rankings is because the way that they, um, the way that they prioritize everything from curriculum to the students that they accept to the way that they allocate their, uh, scholarship money is, uh, evaluated by, and then influenced by that evaluation, um, from the U S news and world reports, uh, rankings. And, uh, and so they claimed in their letters that, um, that the methodology that is used devalues the efforts of the schools, um, and the way that they try to recruit poor and working class students or devalues the efforts that they have to provide financial aid based on need and encouraging students to go into, um, you know, postgraduate professions, like maybe a low paid public service, uh, uh, job after graduation. And so all of those things that, that Yale tries to, to, to praise and promote with their students and with their school are, are kind of dinged when it so, comes to the rankings. So they're saying like, because, uh, the report look or us news and world report looks after like what alumnus and alumnus will do after graduating. If that alumnus then goes on to do something that is, you know, philanthropic or low paying or whatever, uh, they take that as a negative, And so they philosophically disagree with that. Right, exactly. So, so you know, the way that the students, the 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 amount of money that the students make, yeah, in their first job after law school, is um, evaluated uh, as part of the ranking. Okay. And okay. so, if you have a bunch of students who are going into like public service after graduation, and they're maybe not making so much money in their first job because they're trying to do something other than work for a giant corporation, then the law school gets dinged for that. How transparent are the calculations for the rankings? Do they actually put out like, here's our equation? They put out the criteria that they use. Um, and I don't know exactly what I, they put out the criteria and they do put out the the rankings. Although I don't, I don't know if the exact formula is out yeah, there. I, I don't think it is. I might be wrong, um, but they definitely, the inputs are there and yeah. they know that just be better on these inputs. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, and this is the time I'm going to break up. I, I, I was like so excited to talk about this because it's yeah. actually one of my favorite like axioms in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but Goodhart's Law, it's called. Um, and Goodhart's Law states that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Right. Um, and so that is what winds up happening with these. I mean, it applies in you know, you can talk about GDP as a measurement of economy or whatever it is, but it, it, it uh, which I think is where it initially came out because he was an economist, Goodhart was an economist. But, um, but that is what happens when you have these ranking systems that, that matter. The first year they come out, they're like, oh, okay, this is a ranking based on these criteria, whether or not these are the right criteria, you can argue. But then as the rankings gain more and more importance, schools just start juking the stats yeah, in order right. to, Make it so. Uh, Jesse was mentioning public service, and one thing, or, or was mentioning the uh, well, first the, the jobs you get. So, what a lot of schools would do, uh, a lot of law schools would, um, if you didn't get that job right out of school, the school would hire you for oh, sure. something. Um, and and you know, which was a nice little security blanket if you were that student, but it was done to make sure that their rankings stayed high. Right. Then the rankings started, um, the, 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 the system, they were like, oh, you can't do that. We're not going to count jobs at the university. But then what wound up happening is there were a lot of schools that offered these fellowships for people going into public service to essentially make up the difference in your salary, right? You're going to go and you're going to become, go into, you know, going to go work for Bronx defenders or, or right. legal aid or something like that. But we know you want money, so here's this fellowship that you're getting in order to help make up what you would go if you went to go work for a big law firm. And then once the ranking system, once the U.S. News World Report said, we're not going to count jobs that you have at the school, those fellowships were also excluded. So that further deterred people from going into these public service positions. So, right. And that's a, absolutely something that one of the one of the points that the Yale dean made in, in their letter, in her letter, which is that um, they do have so many more public interest fellowships um, and they are highly selective. They pay comparably to salaries, but they're basically classified as unemployed. Hmm. Interesting. I yeah, it would be. It's it's funny. It's how like you actually are by adjusting the metrics in this way, you're actually creating like a negative impact on the world writ large, because you're like, if a place with a bunch of money like Yale or Harvard wants to give money to their graduates to go pursue something that is ideally, you know, good for the world, good for, you know, people who are uh, disadvantaged by the law. Uh, and the ranking says, well, that's just juicing the, the numbers. First of all, kind of who cares, but then secondly, like changing the numbers just to make the world a worse place so that your numbers are more accurate. <laughs> seems like a silly solution. Especially yeah. because yeah. like applying these numbers generally is a bad move in the first place. Like Devin, to your point, if someone wants to go and become a Senator, then Yale is a better choice for them. If someone wants to go be a trial lawyer in Brooklyn, Yale is not a great choice for them. So it's really dependent on what the person wants to do with their career, less about the number on a scale. And right. that's, that's not to say that they wouldn't be able to get a trial lawyer job in Brooklyn if that was their goal and they went to Yale, but don't if they don't money need, you could go to, you know, uh, I have a, one of my good friends went to went to Brooklyn College for his law degree, um, yeah. which is where Joe Pesci went in My Cousin Vinny. Um, but uh, and he's undefeated, as far as I can tell. He is undefeated. Also, it's where the kid from Hook is one of the professors there. He's a law professor, anyway. But um, 
but you can get a great legal education there, right? But it's, it's, you know, not a T14 school, but if you want to go be a trial lawyer in Brooklyn, Brooklyn College is a great place to go to law school. Yeah. Right. And T14, by the way, is just um, uh, the name that is given to the top 14 law schools in the nation is just the shorthand. And do you know why it's 14, Devin? They were the 14 that kind of like jumped around. And mm. then the 15th one was like a step, seen as a step below. So it was just, gotcha. I'm sure that since that determination has come out, at least one school has jumped in and, you know, some have come down, but for a long time, at least. There, they would shift around within the rankings, but it, those fourteen kind of stayed the top fourteen. Yeah. Well, so to your point about um, juicing the numbers, you know that that is also one of the reasons that was stated by the deans, which is that the data can be very easily manipulated. And they pointed to an example for Columbia oh, University. Had yeah, you heard about this? Yeah, undergrad, right? It was yeah. It was the the university as a whole. Yeah. Um. And I guess over the summer they said that they would no longer be participating in the ranking system. Um. After they were ranked, I think number two. Um. Maybe behind Yale. But uh, basically, one of their one of the Columbia professors, um, a mathematician, wrote a twenty one page critique of the school's data that they submitted for uh for rankings on his website. He just like posted this 21 page critique on his website and talked about all the like data that he collected and the ways that like, uh, they had basically just juiced the numbers to make themselves look better. And, uh, and so following that, they, they withdrew and they were, I guess, dropped in rankings from two all the way down to 18. Yeah. Um, but he was, he, he basically said, you know, that their undergraduate size, uh, undergraduate class sizes were purported, uh, made to look smaller, um, and that it made their instruction spending look a lot greater and, um, the, that they had made it look like their professors were more highly educated. So, uh, it is, it, it just, it's, it's kind of funny. Cause I'm like, so just like some math professor at Columbia was like, I'm taking them down. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I have a moral obligation. It's like, buddy. I'm hush. Pretty sure it's like, is that Miss Maisel's dad? That's, that's, <laughs> right. Uh, probably. I, I mean, there, there are lots of examples. And so th- there are some, there's also I, uh, Temple's business school. I know there was a big scandal where they were falsifying stuff. I think, I, I don't know. Don't sue me if I'm wrong. Temple, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, but so, so things run from like extreme fraud like that to like just more basic juking of the numbers mm-hmm. where like one thing is one thing that gets calculated in this is yield, right? It, it's if they accept you, they want you to go because the right. percentage of people they accept who wind up accepting that acceptance and going to the school winds up factoring in the rankings. And so first off, that leads to, you know, fewer admissions, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, but it also, um, and this is more undergrad, but uh, binding early decisions, um, why, the schools love it because they say, we'll let you in in whenever that is, November, right. you have to come. And what that, who that hurts are uh, lower and even middle income students who, are, who want to say, well, I got admitted to these five schools, but like, what can you give me in terms of financial aid? Right. Because if you're bound in November, then whatever aid they give you, they're giving you. And so that disproportionately helps rich kids who are going to get into school, who are going to have that better chance to get into school just because they can pay for it. The other example, and, and I'm going to, you know, spill some tea on our school, Lawrence, <laughs> but um, is, you know, I, I remember when I started business school at Stern, 
I had wanted, I forget the name of Forrest, maybe you remember the, 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 it was an early program where like you take a couple classes in the summer and it, they, yeah, it was like early start, early summer. start. You're right. Um, and they, and you take two classes the summer before school starts. So you're taking a lighter course load and they say it's to like allow you to get more leadership positions in clubs or whatever. And I remember saying I wanted to do that because I had nothing to do that summer before. It seemed like a, I was eager to get started with school and a lighter course load during the year seemed nice. And one of the professors said, like, ask me what, how I did on my GMAT and ha- what my GPA was. And both of them were, I mean, I taught GMAT. I did really well on that. And my GPA was above average. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he's like, oh, they would never let you start there. And if you talk to the early start people and no shade against them, lots of them are doing very well and and very smart, but a lot of them either had a relatively low GPA or a relatively low GMAT score or GRE score. And because early start is a different admissions class, Mm -hmm. according to how the rankings work. Oh, I see. People that started there were not factored into the incoming classes, average GMAT score and GPA. So it's a way to bring people in who they want but would hurt their rankings. Yeah. And it's just very silly juking the numbers, right? Well, and right. They, they never admit it, and they say that it's for all these other reasons, but it's just to help with the rankings. Well, and, and, and another way that they do something similar is uh, they actually, um, they will like hide the lower scoring applicants as like part-time students. So if you're mm. not full-time in the law, to, you know, in the law class, then, uh, then you don't get, you're not counted in the student body. And so they, they say that you're part-time and then they can do a similar thing with like lower scoring people. So then this is interesting because if the the numbers account largely for how you scored from a GPA perspective, regardless of what that course load looked like, and what you what you scored on the LSAT or the GMAT or the GRE, if they account for those two numbers in the score, as long as those two numbers look really good, you have a pretty decent chance of getting accepted regardless of you know, any other innate ability, like maybe I did really well because I had a bunch of money and was able to pay somebody to teach me how to take the LSAT, or, uh, I was able to take, get a 4.0 GPA in, um, you know, undergrad because I took, uh, oh, I don't know, design classes or whatever. <laughs> right. Fa- fashion design. Um, yeah. uh, right, right. Exactly. Uh, history of polka dots. Um, <laughs> that, that's a preview for what we're about, to talk about. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but that, and that actually things, and I'll, I'll, um, so business school, a lot of other grad schools kind of different, right? Business school students tend to come in a little early, older, like their late twenties, and and your more matters. Um, and I should say, in addition to teaching outside, I also was an admissions consultant for grad school, so I helped people put together their application packages. Else, else, or not else, law school, it is ninety percent. GPA and LSAT score with the weight there towards the LSAT score. Historically, obviously, yeah. things are changing now. So it depends much on the school so, too, but like NYU is very much heavy on like what's your LSAT score. Yeah, uh, and and so much so that at least Jesse, when you and I were teaching this, you know, mm-hmm. a, a little while ago, ten years ago or so, you could go to the LSAC's website, the Law School Admissions Council, and mm-hmm. they had a calculator. Yep, and you could put in your GPA and your LSAT score. And it would give you your approximate percentage chance to get into just about every law school in the country. Um, And so, yes, there were some other factors that mattered. But like, if you had a 4.0 and a 180, then uh, it's funny that I remember putting this in years ago, still only 50-50 whether you'd get into Yale. 
But mm-hmm. even Harvard, Stanford, a 4.0, a 180, they're not asking any other questions. You had like a 90% chance of getting right. into a top law. Now, again, like six people per administration got a 180. It's very, right. very difficult. Right. But um, but it's it's it, it was just that. They don't care that you were dewarming orphans in Somalia, um, <laughs> which is funny because I used to say that when I was helping people, but it is from this movie. Um, all this other stuff, they just didn't matter or didn't matter to them. It really was just those scores. And to that point, that that GPA number, it didn't matter whether you got that from, you know, a, a, a lower ranked school or an Ivy League. It didn't matter. It's why uh, it, the people that I used to have as as clients or students that really hated this were like biology majors or <laughs> hard science majors where it was really hard to get A's. Yeah. And and so, mm-hmm. but in terms of the admissions, that didn't really matter. If you had a, you know, if you had a 4.0 in, in fashion design, not to, again, knock fashion designers, but if you had a 4.0 in fashion design, you were a better applicant than someone with a 3.1 in chemistry, although that 3.1 in chemistry might be harder to get. Right. Yeah. And that's actually something that was explicitly called out by the um, the dean of the the Yale Law School. Um, her name is uh, something Gherkin. Oh, gosh. Uh, Sweet dean, Gherkin? Yeah, Dean Gherkin. Um, but she, you know, she pointed out that, uh, I guess I don't know the exact um, formula for everything, but she did point out that 20% of the overall ranking comes from grades and test scores. And uh, the quote that she had in her letter was, this heavily weighted metric imposes tremendous pressure on schools to overlook promising students, especially those who cannot afford expensive test preparation courses. And that's absolutely right. Yeah. Devin just put in the chat that her name is actually Dill Gherkin. I'm just sorry. (laughs) Heather Heather Gherkin. Heather Gherkin. Mm. And and to that that point, talk about the cost. The courses are expensive. Yeah. Like, and, and, and. The courses are the bare minimum. Like I, I did, I taught courses. I also did private tutoring. Um, I charged a lot of money to do private tutoring, and I oh, still I was sort of of like on the low mid end of what people charge because I didn't feel like building into a whole business. But you can easily, at least in a place like New York City, find people mm-hmm. charging five hundred dollars an hour or more. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah. Or, I charged so much money for my tutoring uh, when I was there, but I also took a class. I took an LSAT class through Kaplan, uh, when I was considering it was the first time I opened a credit card. Um, and I put it on my credit card. I was paying for it literally 10 years later because I didn't have the money to do it. It was like $1,200 and I was working as a waitress. Um, and I took the class, my initial, I'm going to get really real. My initial test score was 148, which is pretty close to one. Uh, was it 148 or 151? It was, it was like right around that middle 50th percentile. And I got up to 165 when I took my first official LSAT. Which is just over 90th percentile for those listeners. So I went from 50th percentile to 90th percentile. I went from getting into, you know, um, a top 50 school in Florida to getting into you know, potentially a top 20 school. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, you need to, in order to get into law school at all, you need to be a high 140, low 150 would be getting in. Below that, you're probably not really getting it, I would say. Um, but 
as Jesse pointed out, you know, that's that's a different this the for those who don't have the facility with that that, you know, those of us who taught it do, the score ranges from 120 to 180. I mm-hmm. never remembered why they picked those numbers, but it goes from 120 to 180. A 151 is 50th percentile, and you need to be at least close to that to have a realistic shot of getting in anywhere. Like right. Get, right. Um, but a 164 is 90th percentile. Yeah. So it's uh, uh, and, and there are no half points or anything like that. So just a 13 point increase puts you from dead middle of the pack mm-hmm. to the top 10 percent. And then um, another 13 point increase on top of that puts you in the like one percent of one percent or something. Well, like I mean, even so, a uh, 164 is 90th percentile. 169 is 95th percentile. Yeah. And so above 172 is 99th. I think yeah, I think I think it was that. But so yeah. when you when you're talking about the these 170 scores, the, you're really talking about very very increasingly few people getting yeah. getting there because you know you have only five percent of people getting the top eleven scores, right? Yeah. Um, right? So there is a lot of clustering around the middle, and and so um, but so when you talk about oh, I raised my score ten points that. Raising your score on the LSAT 10 points changes your life, right? It changes completely where or you're able to. It does to. nothing if you go from a 170 to a 180. It does almost <laughs> nothing. It, you know what it does? It gets, it, it, at that point, it, it does do something because a 170 won't get you into Yale. Most yeah. of them, for the most part, it, like, yeah. Uh, 170 to 180 probably gets you from a top 10 school to a top two school. Right. Or gets you money. Um, mm-hmm. at, a, yeah. at a lower yeah. school, which then also is important because as I used to tell my students who were studying to be lawyers, don't go to law school. Um, it winds up not being worth it financially unless you can basically, unless you can get into a super top school or right. you can get money. Right. And, you know, they, again, one of the other things that, that is pointed out about why it's so problematic is that it ends up basically helping the wrong students in terms of financial aid, because what they're trying to do then is say like, well, we'll give all this financial aid to people who have high test scores so that we can woo them over to our school. Whereas if their test scores weren't weighted so heavily or at all, then they could divert scholarship money to low income students. And again, being more, provide more diversity in their student body. Which is going back to the main topic of this. One of the reasons why this is happening now, right? Because the, the writing is on the wall that the Supreme court in the spring, spring Mm -hmm. of 2023 is going to, do away with affirmative action. They're going to say the, the super conservative Supreme Court is going to say that affirmative action is illegal. You cannot consider race as part of admissions. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure they have, they'll have nothing to say about legacy. I was or whether say, um, if legacy programs effectively allow 99% white people into a school, isn't that also affirmative action? I mean, we've always had affirmative action for white people. That's it's been affirmative action for people and for white people, right? Of it, but of course, we won't talk. We won't touch legacy students, which are the main source of affirmative action. In, right. In- and and I joked before about how discussing my school is a whole podcast, but discussing the affirmative action case is definitely that a is, whole separate uh, podcast. Yeah. We'll have you back on, on that one. Yeah. But um, but uh, but yes. So the um, but seeing that coming down the pipe. Uh, you know, despite what a lot of um, white conservatives 
uh, let's be honest, white and Asian conservatives, because they right. they are getting used. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of uh, people in the Asian community have issues with this as well. And understandably so. I get why people don't like affirmative action. But um, but uh, despite what a lot of uh, people think, uh, schools still are going to want diversity. It's not that they're just being strong armed into this. It's not that they're going to want difference of background. They're going to want difference of opinion. And so if you keep the rankings and you say that race is not allowed to be a factor in admissions at all, it really winds up pushing the needle towards these, just towards white people. It's like a white hegemony. Honestly, though, it it pushes the needle a lot towards Asian people. And as a Asian person who was considering law school, I will say that like I, you know, this was before I had learned a lot more and whatever, you know, it did wrinkle a little bit my feathers to, to learn that like, oh, because I checked the box Asian on my application, I am actually weighted a lot less likely, probably even more so than like a, like a white person, because there are so many Asian applicants who have high test scores and who have high GPAs. And they, the other thing that law schools do, and I talked to Debbie, um, another LSAT instructor friend of ours, um, that she pointed out is that they rank, they, they, they lump all Asian nationalities and ethnicities together, right? right? So East Asian and Southeast Asian have vastly different outcomes when it comes to um, who is applying, who is getting accepted, who has high education, what kind of money that they, you know, are coming from. And and so if you're going to, you know, penalize a group of people who are far exceeding or whatever. Test score averages. Yeah, the averages. Then um, you also end up sort of lumping in through a different kind of racism. Um, all of the Asian people that just are on one half of the world, right? Right, right. Yeah, so you have you have Chinese, Japanese, and South Korean along with, you know, mm-hmm. Laotian and Filipino along with Pakistani. And, mm-hmm. and they're and all just considered the same. The same. And, and when you talk about uh, and when, then when they talk about there are no quotas, which there are no quotas, but if all of a sudden there were more Asian people than white people, they wouldn't like that. It, um, right. It, right. So it's It'll like, be interesting to see what ends up happening with that, though, because I, I do feel like there's going to be a huge shift and a lot of white people are going to be very disappointed when it doesn't turn out in their favor. Well, speaking of white people, <laughs> let's talk about the whitest movie I've seen in quite some time. Co-quite. Legally Blonde, yeah. the, the 2001 uh, Reese Witherspoon vehicle. Uh, I think it would be a perfect day to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Luke. Had... And hey, it's not completely white. The the first time a black person shows up is when Holland Taylor hits him on the head with a pencil because he uh, doesn't know the answer. I was like, oh my I, I noticed, I was like, oh, wow, that's the first black person. He's just getting mm-hmm. hit with a pencil. Great. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then there are black women in the like uh, hair salon okay. uh, getting their hair done by Wait, white, white people. Which yeah. I have watched this movie, I don't know how many times. And it was the <laughs> first time I noticed that during the bend and snap scene, there it's like, why are these black women whose hair is already done? Already done. Right. Right. Um, getting their hair done by a bunch of white women, like that is the most unrealistic thing uh, out of a number of unrealistic things. We're gonna we're gonna talk Maybe. about that scene in detail, but no, they were they were like in the like they were in the salon chair. Like yeah. um, <laughs> the, the nails were over where Pauline. That's the nail station. That's over where Pauline is. They were clearly in the hair section. I'm sure. <laughs> so uh, this film uh, again came out in 2001. Uh, it is definitely set in that exact moment in time. 
Uh, it stars Reese Witherspoon. I mean, the cast is is kind of amazing. Um, it, it's Reese Witherspoon, Selma Blair, Luke Wilson. Uh, it's got uh, Victor Garber, uh, Jennifer Coolidge. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just running through all the people I remember off the top of my head. Ali Larder. Everyone's midriff. Like it is. It is absolutely a 2001. Uh, centerpiece for a lot of talent so we covered election about two weeks back which was sort of the reese witherspoon breakout that led to these kind of movies she had worked with some blair before on cruel intentions oh, that same year so she had like a pretty amazing like cut three-year run sort of leading up into this uh this film uh the director is this guy robert lukitic uh he's an australian director and he's done uh some things that you might recognize like monster in law um that movie 21 uh, a movie called The Ugly Truth. Basically, if there were ever two attractive people standing back to back to each other on a poster, good chance <laughs> he directed that. Um, most recently, uh, he did some work on the the Netflix uh, series Babysitters Club. He did some episodes of Jane the Virgin. Uh, so, still working director, but you know, kind of definitely fit this era pretty well, <laughs> I would say. Um, and then the two writers. Um, it's based on a novel by Amanda Brown, but the two writers, Karen McCullough and Chris Kirsten Smith. Um, have worked together on a bunch of things that I'm sure uh, you know and love. Uh, the House Bunny, 10 Things I Hate About You, She's the Man, uh, you know, kind of that early 2000s, mid-2000s era. Um, and and I, I think, by and large, they did a really good job with the script. Like, overall, like, the, the one thing I noticed about this is that it is perhaps the most economical script I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, is, there's not a moment wasted. <laughs> it is such a well-written script. Um, and you know, having watched, I've watched this movie a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I, the thing is, I don't remember the beginning as much because it was a, it's come on TBS and now I'm going to watch yeah. it again. Right. So I would watch it like somewhere around 10 to 20 minutes in and then watch the rest. So I always forget bits about the beginning, but the way they plant seeds, I mean, it's obvious when you've seen the movie before, but they, they plant everything. They manage to give the exposition in a way where you learn everything you need to know in a way that just flows well. Like it is, I would, I would put this script in a screenwriting class. I think oh. it's, and they, and they chose, I will say this. So I've read the book too. Mm. Um, an ex of mine had it and I lying around one day and I, I decided to read it. Originally Elle Woods went to Stanford um, in the, uh, in the book. Mm. Um, Cause I think the, the author of the book went, was a, blonde woman who went to Stanford um, and choosing to make it Harvard to get more of the fish out of water story also, I think is a, is, a, a, is a clear choice. Yeah. 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 Uh, what I think is really interesting is the first 20 minutes or I, I've been written down first 19 minutes and 43 seconds of this film could be its own movie. Like, because she has the relationship with the hot boyfriend who breaks up with her she has the the fall from and like pouting in her room, crying with her girlfriends. Um, decision to go to law school, to which her father says, "Law school is for people who are ugly and serious." Which I love. that's a great line. Uh, and then you know the there's the hurdle of you need recommendations for your professors, a hell of an admissions essay, and at least a 175 on the LSATs is uh, like the the line from her guidance counselor or whatever. And then she has to go through the montage of getting, you know, herself ready for the LSAT. Uh, and her, score, her first score was 143. Literally two minutes later, she got a 179. And it was just like, again, 
That is the first uh, 19 minutes and 43 seconds. That could be the whole movie. The whole movie could be her, like, you know, experiencing the breakup, deciding to make something out of her life. She gets accepted to Harvard and hooray, that's the, you know, the end of the movie. But that's really, that's act fucking one. It's only the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've taught thousands of students. No one has ever, that I've, I've had people make big jumps. I've never seen anyone go from a 143 to a 179. The largest jump I've seen is when I was teaching in Boston um, for the the uh, the summer summer intensive intensive program. Yeah, SIP, the summer intensive program that Kaplan put together, and it's basically it's basically just I mean it's for very rich people, um, and it is just a six week. LSAT camp where you, the kids go and live in a dorm and they just do nothing but LSAT studying from like morning to night. And then they have, it's also for, uh, boyfriends, uh, that you're trying to, to impress, to come and visit. (laughs) Were you impressed by that? I, I mean, I was impressed by how smart you were. Oh, nice. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so we had a student there one year, um, cause I taught for three summers there and he was from Japan and English was not his first language. Uh, but he spoke it very proficiently. Like you, I mean, you do need to be able to speak English very proficiently. It's not, you know, you can't rely heavily on like non language sections like math, for instance. Um, but he, he took the initial test because we have all the students take their diagnostic test when they first get there just to get a baseline of where they are and like what the, you know, um, what, what, where they need to improve. And his very first test, I mean, he got like a 123. He got below guessing. So if you, if you guessed randomly and, you know, you would get 20% of the answers correct, then you would get a 124. And he got like a 123. I mean, he got like an actively bad score. And as we were progressing through the course, it just turned out that he was like, he had a complete misunderstanding of like what basic um, concepts for the LSAT were. And so anyways, he ended up jumping all the way, I mean, into the 170s from like the 120s. Because that's, that's insane. Yeah, it was, it was bananas. And that's wow. the only time I've ever seen something like quite... Yeah, I, I had, I think, one student make it from the high 140s to the low 170s, and that was, that was, but, but they really are outliers. Anyway, yeah. all right. of this to say is Elle Woods is clearly an outlier yeah. uh, in, in this score jump. But it one is. thing that I, and I remember thinking this when I first saw the movie in theaters back in 2001, I was very impressed when she's studying with her tutor. They use a real logic game from a real LSAT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I was going to ask that. I was actually going to ask Jesse if she remembered or had recognized that specific question. Um, I, well, so Devin did remember the <laughs> the specific question even before we watched the movie again. Um, and I have all of the old prep tests yeah. on my computer. So for um, people who don't know uh, what happens with these tests, GMAT was the one I was I, I did, but uh, they released the questions, or at least some of the questions, after the tests have been uh, published because they don't use them anymore. They can't use a, te- a question that's already been asked. Um, so they release those, and that's where those test books get the old questions from. And so you will find that oftentimes, like people who've taken the test will be go on to tutor and they'll be like, oh, that was on the test that I took. Mm-hmm. This, that logic game is about their their. It's a matching game. There are four cassettes uh, with uh, rock, pop, opera, and I think folk. I'm going to cut this. I'm going to cut this. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yes, but uh, but I not only I not only recognize that test, but at least when the movie came out 
20 years ago. I remembered the setup to how to do that. The the screenwriter, uh, Kirsten Smith, talked about uh, how they pitched this um, uh, to the studio. They pitched it as a combination of Clueless meets a movie called The Paper Chase, which is a law school movie from the, the 70s. Um, and she said that she actually did wear pink into the meeting to sort of show like, you know, what Elle's vibe was going to be. Um, but apparently the first version of the script was actually uh, more raunchy and kind of like in the vein of uh, American Pie. And so oh, no. uh, according to Jessica Caulfield, who plays Margot, one of Elle's best friends, um, she says, uh, what we know uh, now is Legally Blonde and what it began as were two completely different films. It transformed from nonstop zingers that were very adult in nature uh, to this universal story of overcoming adversity by being oneself. Originally, there was a line when her friend Serena says, what's that thing that always makes us feel better no matter what? And I say, cunnilingus? Oh my gosh. That's definitely a joke from a different movie. Also not the best version of that joke, but anyway, they, 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 they fixed it. <laughs> they made it a better script. <laughs> yeah. And, and they made it. And that movie that you just described, I don't think stands the test of time the no. way this is like, or the way American pie does, you know? <laughs> right. But, but, but this movie still, you know, again, as someone who was, his primary job was, was teaching people who wanted to go to law school until I went to grad school myself, but I did this for almost a decade. Women who want to go to law school, the number of them who like refer to themselves as L Woods, <laughs> like, and that and that's up twenty years later. Yeah, women who want to go, girls who want to go to law school, she is still a character that they look up to and that they emulate and and want to be like because not only is and that wouldn't have happened in the cunnilingus version of the movie right right but, but not only is it the, the it's the fact that like it's a deeply feminist movie like it is. It, is, it, it it shows the the advantages but also the disadvantages of pretty privilege and like it shows that like it, it's it's really about a woman who gets you know uh undervalued because of who she is and then proves her worth because of who she is but also who she is is like the most feminine feminized version of a person right? right and and so at every step of the way because she happens to speak the way that women are told that they have to speak to be acceptable or she looks a certain way or what you know all of these ways that are ultra ultra female mm -hmm. uh she is discounted at every step of the way despite all the actual actionable things that she has done to get her to this esteemed place. And uh, Reese Witherspoon even said, like, in portraying Elle, it was very difficult because, like, being that up, that peppy, that, like, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, being able to do that while also taking sort of the arrows that she takes sort of in the next 25 minutes of the film, right? So she misses an assignment. It's uh, gets kicked out of class. Um, she meets Luke Wilson's character, who uh, is is on um, campus, we've, we come to find, because he's working for Victor Garber's character to like find, you know, smart law students to be a part of his firm's uh, internship program or whatever it is. Like, she's trying to be up positive, like, you know, um, smiley and happy and Reese Witherspoon as a person is like, that's not me. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I'm, I, you know, I can be, I'm, I'm much more, you know, down to earth than that. Um, and so she's like, it was really a challenge to portray that, but she thought it was incredibly important to do so in a way that came across as genuine, not as like, you know, superficially bubbly. A, a real person could act this way for sure. In a way, it's almost more, it is more feminist and has aged better than another movie that talks about the way that women present themselves, which is um, In a World with Lake Bell. Yeah, yeah. 
where the whole thing, it, it has not aged very well. She's trying to get people to stop, you know, st- get women to stop speaking in a high voice and to be mm-hmm. taken more seriously. And she, you know, she's trying to change the way that her voice sounds to be more, conf- to conform more to like a man's p- job or whatever. And, and it's, it's interesting because I think that this really leans into, you can be very feminine and, right. and there's actually nothing wrong with that. And, and maybe if somebody does have a problem with the way that you speak, because it is 90% women speak that way, um, yeah. then maybe they don't have a problem with vocal fry. They have a problem with women, or maybe they don't have a problem with, you know, somebody being bubbly and cheerful. They just have a problem with women being equal. Right. I do yeah. want to know how she missed that first assignment, though. That that seems like a failing of the school. That I don't seem know. Like it's her. <laughs> was she just busy decorating her dorm room that she somehow got all to herself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, a dorm room she could fit an elliptical machine inside. <laughs> I think. I think by the time you're a by the time you're a, a law student, you wind up with singles. I, I think it's just the freshmen, the the underclassmen that they that they put together. But um, but yeah, it's also it, she was too busy. Um, Literally every time she walked, having everyone go, "Oh my God, who is that?" Which yeah, is that's the recurring theme of this movie. Yeah. Is they've never seen anyone blonde or wearing any colors whatsoever yeah. to the point where they stop playing football right. to look at her. Have you it ever is- seen somebody in pink before? Oh my gosh, <gasps> she's wearing heels. <laughs> yeah, but, and then and then they add uh, my other. It's a bad thing of this movie, but I love it. It it has the worst ADR of any movie uh, that I've seen. So sort of the dubbed over lines, which anyone listening to this who is inspired to go watch this movie, just pay attention to like, um, like the lines, like after they, after she and Hunter break up, or, um, yeah. they, uh, like someone's like, I'm not going to have the salad. Like just, just dubbed over. <laughs> or like, like whenever there's a crowd, it's just a bunch of people being like, who is that? What is that? Who is that? It's really, really fun. And when they're driving back, she and Emmett are driving back mm-hmm. in the car. What's oh, so um, bad? Oh, that was really bad. Yeah. It's so bad. Not their mouths are not moving at all, and it's just all this like dialogue that's they're supposed to be saying. It's really. I don't normally notice things like that because I'm not a film school student like you do. But it was that particular moment where they're in the car coming back from the jail was um, shockingly bad. Yeah, I would say there there are elements of this movie that are good from a technical perspective. The costume design design is really good, even though it's a bit over the top. It's supposed to be the production design is like not great. Um, a lot of bare walls, a lot of, you know, uh, things that could, could be improved upon, but you know, overall, like the thing about it being in that sort of same time frame as American pie is it does sort of have that same look and feel as right. a lot of those movies in the early two thousands, which is just, you know, maybe it doesn't age well, but it definitely does place it in a, in a moment. So, sure. you know, you can't really hold that against it too much. And, um, and they, and they put a lot of stuff, my my favorite scene that means nothing in the movie is when she and uh, Paulette are um, just they're having a drink at the nail salon and it's snowing just to like let the audience know like and now the passage of time has happened <laughs> Christmas went and we're in the spring semester but they like hold on that scene for a very long time of just the two of them not saying anything but having a drink in the nail salon <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to that uh, obviously she meets Paulette. Uh, because she goes, she, she, uh, finds out after she gets kicked out of class that her ex-boyfriend is now dating Selma Blair, who, uh, is, is actually genuinely wonderful in this role. Um, I thought I was going to really dislike her based off the way that she started out being presented as sort Mm -hmm. of like the shrew and the nag. But then like later on when they're friendly with one another 
and she just becomes kind of a goofball. I'm like, that's awesome. I, I enjoy that version of someone there. They real do it. They, they set you up. That's <laughs> yep. what they wanted you to think. That's right. Uh, but it turns so, out she's more complex of a person. That's right. So uh, the you know Selma Blair and the old boyfriend are together. A guy that that actor that actor didn't really do a ton after this. He also apparently had crushes on both Reese Witherspoon and Selma Blair. He yeah. asked Reese Witherspoon out, or it, it confessed at some point behind the scenes that uh, he was into her, and she says, "Well, that's very sweet of you," and then just like walks away. <laughs> I mean, but we we have neglected also to to mention the the real bombshell in the movie is Linda Cardellini. But like, oh yes, yeah, that's yeah. But but she's not done up to look like that. But like she's also but, later later on. That's <laughs> true. Later. But yeah. but Linda Cardellini. I just want to express my love for Linda. Cardellini. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. It's on record. We, we've got it in the in the notes. <laughs> uh, the so the other thing is uh, at this point. So she she drives away upset in a, a very lovely uh, Porsche 911. Um, spins around in traffic, parks, and gets in, goes into a nail salon where she talks to Paulette. They they. Um, you know, get, get a relationship going. This sort of the B plot is her, uh, you know, terrible husband who ex-husband who stole her dog. And she has a crush on the UPS guy. Um, but then about 45 minutes, uh, right about halfway in the movie, uh, this is where Elle Woods decide or like realizes, Oh, this guy that I've been infatuated with the guy I went to law school to chase after to become a serious person to eventually marry. Uh, he's, I'm never going to be good enough for him. Right. That's, she says it out loud. Uh, and then she decide, or I guess there's the process of getting the internship at Victor Garber's uh, law firm. And one, my favorite line <laughs> is when she reads the thing, the two uh, boyfriend and, and someone Blair's character get it. Um, and she gets the third one and she says, me. Yes. <laughs> I appreciated that. It was a, a nice, <laughs> nice shot. I think, um, I think it's great. I also love the fact that, by the way, I just realized I called Warner Hunter like three times uh, earlier. So sorry. No, Warner. no. Um, but, uh, that, that, uh, that both, uh, both of them are like shocked that she got it. And I'm like, there are four names on the list. Right. Yeah. You didn't see the you other see? two. <laughs> that is very funny. Uh, the, so a couple of the other things that happen in this period of the movie, um, before we get to the scene that we will probably have the most conflict over. Um, so th- there's a part where she first gets to law school and they're sitting in a circle, like talking about, you know, what everyone did before coming to law school. And someone was like, Stephen Hawking stole my idea for, you know, relativity from his Where does paper. he go? Sorry, that, that, that's actually one of my notes is where does Mitchell, the pretentious guy go? Because David Kidney shows up again. Eden yep. shows up again. But like, he's kind of in the background a couple of scenes, but like, I don't know. I want to, I want to learn more about Mitchell, the pretentious guy. <laughs> there were, there were some scenes that were cut out and stuff. So it's possible he's on the cutting room floor. Like he might've had yeah. a little, um, not a big deal at all. Uh, didn't need to see more of him, but, but that scene was actually based on, so they went to a law school. I forget which one, um, but the, one of the writers mentions that the scene where it's a group of students going around in a circle talking about, um, talking about it was from eavesdropping on actual law students, uh, talking to each other for the first time. So she's like, <laughs> Oh, they, they're really weird and very full of themselves. Um, yes. and then the other thing was, uh, <laughs> with the uh the sorority girls um they like took uh an entire sorority out to a mexican restaurant and reese got them all like free margaritas all night 
And then she leaned over to her, her um, fellow actress, uh, Jessica Caulfield, and says, uh, look, we're not drinking anything. We're drinking water the whole night. We're going to stay sober, and we're going to take notes on how they behave. And so <laughs> that was kind of how the her two best friends sort of got a lot of their characterization out of that. Um, so yeah, at this point in the movie, uh, they are moving from getting into law school, starting to figure out how to take law classes, all this kind of stuff. So now she is brought in as an intern at Victor Garber's uh, law firm and they have a murder case. So the first half of the movie was basically two movies. And now we have the third movie, which is, uh, there's a, uh, Allie Larder is in jail for murdering her husband. Uh, and allegedly, she, allegedly uh, and is now asking or paying a lot of money to Victor Garber to, get her out. Um, she will not expose her alibi. So they have to find another way to prove that she was not there. Right. And the whole time you have the, the professor who is her lawyer, uh, not believing her and, and being pretty dismissive of her, which, you know, uh, at the end end of the day, like who cares if he believes her, like, you know, he, well, who who cares? He shouldn't have to believe her as his job, right? He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't. He he both does not believe Ellie Larder that she didn't do it, and he also doesn't believe uh, Reese Witherspoon in that she is competent in assessing how to uh, handle the case. Which, to be fair, she is a first year law student. Of course, so. of course. But he he does seem to be much more like uh, responsive to uh, what's his name and uh, Selma Blair, uh, like their. Where? vibe he sim- seems to pick up more on than than Reese's. So. Sure. Or maybe definitely Warner because he is also asking both Selma Blair and Reese Witherspoon's characters to get him water and coffee yeah. and food yeah. and be his little secretary, which yeah. my response to that would be to make the most God awful cup of coffee you have ever tasted and be like, Oh, here you go. Yeah, I would just say no. Weaponized incompetence. It works for men. Why not? If men, yeah, if men are just not chosen, quote unquote, because they are just not good at that, be like, oh my God, I'm I'm so sorry. I must be terrible at making coffee. You should probably ask Warner. The bigger problem I have with this- so those, those are the cutscenes that Forrest was talking about before. <laughs> yeah, no, so here's, yeah, I mean, that's probably, yes. Uh, here, here's the thing that I had the larger problem with was when they, it's like, they make a big deal out of Victor Garber not believing Ellie Larder. Like, who cares? Lawyers take on cases where people are genuinely guilty all the time. Like they're lawyers. That's what they do. They, they are always focused on how to win the case, not like whether the person was guilty or not. And they seem to make a big deal out of like the fact that, uh, Victor Carver didn't believe her. It's like, I understand you have to make him at this point, you have to turn him from being like a professor that you think is, you know, interesting to a villain. So it's a, a shift they had to make tonally. Um, and then, of course, we get to the group bend and snap scene. <laughs> well, somebody, else, somebody, else, somebody else set this up for me, please. Sure. So I guess um, the Reese Witherspoon character goes to the salon. She's very upset. And so then Paulette, Paulette is there working, and she is too embarrassed to talk with the the US, UPS delivery person who has been giving her mail and giving her eyes throughout the the film. And so Reese uh, decides to teach her a tried and true way to always get a man's attention, which is the bend and snap, where you slowly bend over, although don't face your butt toward them. And then you snap up and put your your hands to the sides of your boobs, like like boob ears. Like a tiny T-Rex. Yeah. Yeah. 
which like why i guess i guess maybe to like also push the boobs up at the same time by the cleavage it's to it's to sort of you know yeah um and and so there is a whole scene where they they it's not a dance scene but it may as well be a dance scene it's a, it's a dance scene be in like you know sister act 2 or something like that where you just have a whole bunch of people coming together and doing some kind of choreographed dance basically of the bend and snap. So here I'm on a circle dolly at one point to like have <laughs> to look around and like be like yeah it's great so here is why it's a dance scene. It was choreographed by award-winning choreographer Tony Basil, uh, who was quoted as saying, I choreographed iconic things for David Bowie and Tina Turner. People interview me and they go, you did the bend and snap. I'm like, what, a one and a half minute number in the movie? But it was such an integral part. I would disagree with that last sentence, but it seems like... It, it, uh, also, Hey Mickey, for those who don't know Tony Basil. That, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Singer of Hey Mickey. Um, and so the, uh, here's how the, the scene came about. Uh, Devin, do you know the producer, Mark Platt? Not personally. Well, I mean, do you know what, what he's done? Yes. He's, he's done lots and lots of things. And then his son is Ben Platt and, uh, yes. That's right. So Mark Platt is, uh, primarily known for, uh, for doing filmed musicals basically. So into the woods, La La Land, Wicked, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of all the other ones produced rent, produced Mary Poppins, Aladdin. Um, so Cruella, like this dude is like, he, he Dear Evan Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen. So it's like, <laughs> if, if it's a musical that was big on Broadway and there's going to be a version of it done in Hollywood, he's the dude. Right. And so for him to say, we need a quote unquote dance number in this movie is not at all a surprise. So according to, uh, Kirsten Smith, one of the writers, uh, quote, Mark felt like we needed a big set piece in the second act, and we kept trying to think of how we could make it around Paulette and Elle. We were like, should the nail salon get robbed? Is there a mystery that happens? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Karen McCall is quoted as saying, I was like, what if it's as simple as Elle teaching her a move to help her get the UPS guy? Then Kirsten jumped off her bar stool and said, oh, like this, and she did the move. I forget which one of us said the bend and snap, but it was probably both said it at the same time. So it occurred while they were like drinking at a hotel bar. I feel like the the, the biggest problem with this is like jerky moves like that, like the bend fine. You're nice and slow down bend to pick something up, but then like a jerk up, like you're doing a, a fucking deadlift, like you're going to hurt your back. And then secondly, quick moves are like upsetting, not sexy. Like what are we like? <laughs> I it's like, I feel like you're just going to be worried about something happening. If somebody like all of a sudden jerks up off the floor. Yeah. I think maybe it's like, there's a, if it's spontaneous, um, or appear spontaneous and only a single time. It's not quite as jarring as if you see like an entire room of people <laughs> doing it all at the same time to music and, and over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Apparently Tony Basil did call the, the move with the arms, uh, the little chicken wings. Sure. Yeah. Which is fair. Well, I know I just, so I didn't know this about Mark Platt and I'm looking up Mark Platt as you, as we're doing this and everything you're saying is right. But like, he didn't have, this is only his, his, Third, his first movie was something from 87 that I've never heard of. Right, right. Right, as an executive producer. I don't even know, is that really him? But, like, his first credits on IMDb are this and Josie and the Pussycats, which came out the same year. Great although, movie. Great movie. Completely underrated movie. Um, although I think it's properly rated now because so many people think that's underrated. <laughs> sure. But, um, but so, it's, yes, he went on to do Nine. He went on to, he's doing Wicked. But they didn't know that was going to ha- his next 20 years. So, like... But he I'm had, just saying. I, mean, I guess you're the producer. You 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 have the 
the yeah. power. I'm just saying he's always been that dude. Like yeah, he's always okay. the guy who's like, we need a set piece. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and the, the, my favorite part. Was, sure. just yeah. So, so Jennifer Coolidge said, uh, one day I said to Tony Basil, look, I'm not L I'm the other character, Paulette. And I wouldn't be really good at the bin snap. That's not who I am. She was basically saying, I don't, I'm not getting the choreography. You know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm good at this. Um, so she's like, why do I have to keep trying so hard to do it? And Tony replied, Jennifer, you need to learn the dance number and do your very best because even if you're trying to do your very best, you will still be the worst dancer. <laughs> and it was, a, and then she says, it's a very sobering moment, but she was right. <laughs> All right, so we we have a, a child that is running around the house right now doing who knows what. So let's we'll close this out with uh, basically look they they obviously free Ali Larder's case. Uh, Victor Garber gets fired because he tried to hit on L, um, and that get that word gets back to Ali oh, Larder. Fired? She, Did I miss that from oh. being her lawyer? Oh, oh, okay. Not from like being, from his firm. He probably has tenure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, oh, from the, yeah not, not from the school. Not from Harvard. And not, not from, his, from firm. his firm, which he is a named partner in. But just but from the case. Just from the then, case. But then what was weird is he goes and he sits in the audience for the case that he just got fired from, which is kind of like if you work at McDonald's at the cash register and get fired, and then you order a burger and sit in the play place, and you're just like, I'm going to watch you, Erica. I'm going to watch I, you fuck up the register, Erica. I feel like he was, I feel like it was like in, in case of future schadenfreude, I mean, right? It was, right yeah. it was for a future, I told you so. I think yeah. that's right. But I, it's I think still... that's it. And, and also just in case she like realized her mistake right away and was like, actually, I'm just kidding. Can I have this guy back? I'll continue to pay you a lot of money. Yeah. Right. The, the one, the only thing about this part that was in any way, like a little bit wrote uh, was like. He tries to hit on her. Selma Blair sees that she acts you know, badly to Reese Witherspoon in the elevator. And then the next scene, she like exposes the thing that happened to Allie Larder. And then uh, Luke Wilson's character like tells her what's happened. And it's like, because really, she went to the jail for some reason, because yeah. that scene doesn't really make sense. But yeah. right. It's, it's with uh, like a minute and 15 seconds that this entire like, you know, bump in the road was like taken care of. And I'm like, that was so fast. I, I think that it was, again economical in its use of uh whatever but it's like it was certainly rushed you know the the ending is elwoods takes over uh solves the case because she figures out two things one she discredits the pool boy uh who is a gay man who then never had uh, he he basically discounts his testimony or his just testimony is discounted because l proves that he was gay on the stand and gives us one of the most quotable lines Emmett proves that Emmett proves that he's gay based on L's hunch because this was before right. he gets uh, before Victor Garber gets fired. That's right. That's right. Um, and that's then, how she proves to Ali Lardy's character that she does kind of know what she's talking about and she might be in good hands because uh, Jesse, do you want to say the one you, you seemed like you were setting up to say? But it's basically don't stomp your last season Prada shoe at me, honey. There you it's go. So These aren't last season. <gasps> <laughs> she gasps at the revelation and then she says wonder what color are my shoes or what kind of shoes are these and goes, oh. yeah, with a very like a, a generic hispanic uh, gay accent that's yeah. reminiscent of uh of the pool boy um in the birdcage right which, um, uh, hank azaria hank azaria yeah, which makes you wonder why uh this person has a pool with a pool boy in a thong in cambridge but 
you know, <laughs> it still gets warm in the summer. Heated <laughs> pools, folks. Heated pools. She likes yeah. to watch him clean the filters. I guess that's true. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, the the next big thing is um, you, you mentioned Lyndon Carnellini. She's the daughter of the the murdered man Chutney, which is such a yeah, yeah such an odd <laughs> odd choice uh but she uh l exposes that she had gotten a perm earlier that day but then claimed to be in the shower when the gunshot occurred um so she didn't hear it but you don't shower after you get a perm because it'll screw up your perm uh Ooh. at the risk of deactivating the ammonium thyglycolite yes there you go. Exactly. that's right i think <laughs> if you can just throw chemical names into any kind of defense people are like oh shit that sounds right <laughs> You know, that that's, uh, proves the thing wrong. Case ends, hooray. There's a little epilogue where she graduates and Luke Wilson's going to propose that night, yada, yada. End of the movie. A very abrupt ending, uh, but, you know, she wins. Good she wins. Well, that's actually the, the very, very end of the movie is uh, two years later. She is the, she's not the class valedictorian, but she is the person that the class chose to speak for right. the class at graduation and gives a, a speech where she uh, has a throwback to her first day of school and the professor who ended up convincing her to stay at school. Would you believe that this was not the uh, actual first ending that was planned for the movie? I would believe that. What, yeah. what was it, Forrest? I'm glad you asked, Evan. So <laughs> uh, the, the, the original ending actually had Elle and Vivian, played by Selma Blair, in Hawaii, in beach chairs, drinking margaritas and holding hands. The insinuation, of course, being that they had either become best friends or had ended up together romantically. So this, this was actually remembered by uh, Jessica Caulfield and Alana Ubach. They remember reading it, but the screenwriters actually say it, it was never written. So that was a, a bit of a point of contention. The, the one that was actually written was um, a second or third ending was going to be like a musical number on the courtroom steps. As L came out, the judge, jury, everybody in the courtroom broke into song and dance. So Mark Platt strikes again. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they actually said they shot some of that or, or whatever, but it, it didn't get anywhere really. Um, and then uh, one version of the uh, ending had Emmett kissing L. Um, they screened that a few times uh, and people didn't actually want it to end with a kiss. Uh, they thought it wasn't about, the story was not about Elle getting a boyfriend. It was mm -hmm. about uh, her succeeding and becoming the person she wanted to be, not about ending up with a guy. So That is the correct choice. Yes, yeah, so good and job. Good job that, test screening audiences, right? <laughs> well, and, and not only the person that she wanted to be, but the person who she actually was. Because in the beginning, who she wanted to be was the, boy, was the girlfriend, right? She went yeah. there just to get the boyfriend. So it's, that's the growth. That's right. 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 But they set her up early on as being able to take down an argument with that woman in the dress shop. That's right. That was a very, very clear setup to say like, oh, she's not your average dumb blonde. She's, she knows about stitching and rayon and what happened last year, et cetera. High viscosity rayon. There it is. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it, I mean, cause that, that's part of the, the economically written part of yep. the movie. It's like nothing I love more than a dumb blonde with daddy's credit card is what the, the lady yep. says. And then she puts her in her place to be like, Here's what's going to happen for the rest. Of this is the lead motif. <laughs> yes, of yeah, that's right. L. Woods. We'll we'll talk about our recommendations. I know where both of you stand, but uh, there are a couple things I wanted to mention first. There were some alternate castings proposed. Um, so originally, uh, Luke Wilson's character uh, Emmett was considered for Paul Bettany. I love Paul Bettany. Could have been good, but yeah. they they actually they went out and they like okay, we need a Luke Wilson type. And then after looking at like six or seven people, they're like, what about Luke Wilson? <laughs> uh, you gotta love it when that happens uh vivian was originally going to be uh chloe Svignier, who could have been good who would have who would have been a brunette for it i assume 
They would have had to make her a brunette for this, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Paulette was actually considered for both uh, Kathy Najemi and Courtney Love, which would have been wild. Uh, but Jennifer Coolidge is the queen, so she they, they made the right decision here. Jennifer Coolidge is like, I think Kathy Najemi would have done a great job. She would have been good, yeah, yeah. But Jennifer uh, Coolidge is, I mean, it's turned iconic. And, yeah, and yeah. both this and... The not nearly as good legally blonde too. <laughs> uh, Jesse, you do you know Kathy Najimy? I know the name, but she's the the larger nun from Sister Act. Oh yeah, she's she's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and Peggy Hill. Um, no, she's she's fantastic. That's interesting. Um, so here are here are a couple options for L. Tell me if any of these strike your fancy. I'll, I'll start from the the worst to potentially the the best. Uh, the uh, they, they were going for Jennifer Love Hewitt, who would have had to dye Go her on. hair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they also thought Gwyneth Paltrow, which at this time uh, at least was the right age. Certainly not, you know, I don't think the right vibe. Um, I, I would rather have Jennifer Love Hewitt than Gwyneth Paltrow. To okay. Uh, they considered Britney Spears uh, as an option because she had just, you know, gotten a lot of press from the MTV Movie Awards or whatever. Bad idea. But they wanted somebody who could act. They, they, they sure did. Uh, have you not seen Crossroads? I have not. Neither have I. But. Yeah. Uh, Alicia Silverstone, which is like, duh. I mean, yeah. She would have been, been great. I mean, yeah. She, she would have been great, but she wouldn't have done it, I don't think. Yeah. Right. Well, because it was too, it was too much like Cher. Yes. Right. Uh, and then the person they actually did offer it to, who turned it down, Christina Applegate. Oh, she'd have killed it. Oh, yeah, yeah I could see that. I yeah. could have. She, I mean, she said uh, that the movie... It just wasn't what she wanted to do at the time. It mm-hmm. wasn't the type of project she was looking for. And she also says, and thank God, because Reese Witherspoon crushed it. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, Reese Witherspoon was fantastic, but Christina Applegate is has never not been fantastic. So, right, like, I, right. I have to imagine that. Yeah, she what, what she said was she was trying to get away from the, um, the married with children you know, dumb blonde, big boob stereotype that she had sort of been in, stuck in for a while. So right. at that point, she was like, I kind of want to just do a different, different thing. And then... And then, you know, she may not have, if she had done this, Ripples in an Ocean, she may not have done Anchorman, and then we would have lost that. No, no. Then we'd have Britney Spears doing Anchorman, and where would we be? <laughs> um, but yeah, so so quick uh, recommendations. Uh, Devin, we'll start with you, because you're uh, the one who's the most obvious. You're holding up a 10 card above your head right now on the video. I, I mean, every time I've rewatched it, I've given it five stars on Letterboxd. Like, I... I have watched this movie more than like this and Wayne's world are up there. <laughs> um, yes, obviously. Uh, and then legally blonde Two, you watch once just so like you go and, you know, eh, and then you never watch legally blondes where mm, they yeah. forget the entire, what made this movie good. And they just went, what if the blonde girls were twins now? And I think it was good. <laughs> right. Well, but then what about legally blonde three? Which is coming out next year, starring Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Coolidge, Jessica Caulfield, and Alana Ubach. I mean, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go in with low expectations because, again, Le- Legally Blonde 2, we don't need to get into it. It's, it's not a bad, bad movie, it, it, but it's not a good movie. Like, oh. it, it, it misses what made this one so good. Um, and, it, and it's fine. Le- uh, but, but I'll watch the third one. I mean, Keep watching Matrix movies. 
the most recent Matrix was a masterpiece. But anyway, uh, it was. So, so Legally Blonde three could be good. This it is could be back. About. Yeah, could be back. I actually, we we got to do a whole podcast on the Matrix uh, quadrilogy now. That's not a word, <laughs> but the aliens made quadrilogy a word, so I'm I'm taking it. Um, but they're all great. They're actually, I, I have a done a revisionist look at uh, Reloaded and uh, Revolutions, and they're actually uh, good. Anyway, so uh, Jesse, Jesse, what do you think about Legally Blonde? Yeah, it was all right. No, I loved it. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a great movie. It's a classic movie. I absolutely recommend it. It's a film that I would feel comfortable putting on with p- pretty much anybody in the room. You know, it's Except the one unfortunate use of the R word. Yes, that's, that's one thing. That, oh, that's true. There is that one little thing where, like, did we need that? Right. Did we? Um, but I, I would say, aside from that, um, at least like I would feel comfortable if we were sitting at any of our parents' house looking for something to watch, being like, okay, Legally Blonde is wonderful. Here's a thing that we can put on that pretty much everybody is going to enjoy and uh, is, you know, going to be a, a good time. Yeah. I, yeah, I give it a, a soft recommend. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, okay, well, actually, let me, let me rephrase that. I, I give it a recommend. People should watch it. But But my thing is like, had I watched it when it, came out i'm not sure i would have liked it as much as i do now i think i looked back on my on my former self in my head when we turned it on and the song started playing and i was like oh 2001 me would have hated this movie because i'd be like oh what is this faux pop punk nonsense i couldn't do like suicidal tendencies to do the opening like whatever i don't know i would have been a a jerk about it and so i I have that like little person inside of me sometimes uh, to fight against. And so I, I am, I do recommend it. I think it, it was good. Um, I, I think some of the economy that they had to use in the editing and the writing and just getting stuff into like a 90 minute film did sacrifice some of like the character stuff I would have liked to have seen more of. Um, I could have done without the bend and snap, but, uh, you know, like a lot of that stuff is iconic for people who saw it in 2001 and it carries on to this day for people who love it. So like, I, I, I realize that I'm probably wrong on that, but it's just a personal, uh, you know, personal uh, thought on, on the matter for me. But yeah, it's still, it is still a good movie. It has great performances, lovely cast. It is well-written. Um, it's just, I wish, I kind of wish they had, this is something I never say. I wish they had had like closer to two hours rather than an hour and a half. Just a, a little bit more air would have been nice, but um, you know, it was 2001. Nobody was making long movies. Except for Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I will, so, they took up all the film <laughs> no one else could use 35 millimeter to bring this all the way back to the story the one thing that i will say is that with harvard and yale and everybody withdrawing um now i think it's like 12 of the top 14 of the t14 uh, at this point withdrawing from the, the rankings consideration um and saying that they will not be worried about the 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 data and test scores and gpa and those hard numbers as much as trying to look at, are you a well-rounded person? Is this something that you've been thinking about for a long time? Like as a candidate, um, in this new world, we do not get an L Woods who gets into Harvard with her 4.0 and 178. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think that we get, I don't think um, that we get her in, in school. 179. Because, oh, was it 179? Oh. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that we get her, you know, people like her in law schools at, after this i disagree because it's the 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 well-rounded part of her like she is very smart 
but also well-rounded. And I think that is what they'll be looking for. One, one thing I didn't mention before is I remember uh, learning after this movie came out that um, admissions, a lot of people on admissions boards of law schools didn't like very specifically the fact that she made a video because people <laughs> kept trying to submit videos and they're like, we don't watch the videos. Um, yeah. But uh, but no, I think uh, the the amount of charity work that she did, the fact that she was in a Ricky Martin video, and also that's like yeah. test test scores and GPA are still going to matter a lot. Also, it's just the weight. But I think she's a well rounded person. Plus, she also has rich parents, so yeah. like, it's not going to. Also, you both you both mentioned we already don't have Elwoods Woods in real life. Nobody goes from one forty three to one seventy nine, well, or at least two people that you have seen in your hundreds of people that you've taught have done that. So it's like you know maybe it is better if like the real L Woods would be somebody who went from a 143 to a 161 and then also does all this other awesome stuff and then gets into Harvard or whatever. Um, and and by the way, to your, your point, uh, just a minute ago about, uh, the video uh, essay stuff is that they did that in the movie. They were like, yeah, we just thought it would be a much better way to convey uh, application than having someone narrate or like doing voiceover. Right. And so it was like, it was great for the movie, but I, I love the uh, unintended consequences. Yeah. Well, and so speaking of unintended consequences, and this is the last thing that I'll leave this with. And I know that, that Devin, you probably had this experience as an LSAT instructor as well, is there was the knock-on effect in the LSAT world of people who like Elle Woods had never considered law school and then just one day decided, well, if she can do it, yeah. then I can do it. Yeah. And so we did for, I mean, at least five, 10 years, I feel like have a, a lot of people in LSAT classes trying to get that huge jump because they saw Elle Woods do it and think that they could do it. And like, they had literally never read anything other than a people magazine. And it was very, there, there was, I think that ripple effect also in the, the LSAT world. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, but I, I do think that, I do think that it is good to expand the base of potential people that, you know, and and, and the the background and all that, but yes, there, there were people who looked at this movie and ignored all the other signs that she is an incredibly smart and talented person and just, you know, abnormally so, and just were like, I like fashion too, or oh, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, like, oh, that's a perfectly reasonable score jump. So I, I will say this, uh, Legally Blonde 3, the original two screenwriters are back, uh, but they also added uh, a gentleman by the name of Dan Gore, you might know, but more importantly, Mindy Kaling. Yeah. Oh. So, should Dan, be funny. Dan, Dan Gore, creator of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and also... Uh, writer, for Park Park Rec, uh, writer for Conan, uh Writer for the show Killing It, which is actually pretty good. If you seen. Uh, but but also in my trivia league, I just wanted to make sure that there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they are getting ready to go to Harvard. Yeah, and um, was going to be a doctor, and now is not a doctor. Not a doctor, as it says at the end of every That's episode. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just the so they are moving away from the LSAT, just as putting a button on it. They are moving away from requiring the LSAT and maybe using the GRE, which I, I will say. Standardized tests all have their problems, and the LSAT yeah. is no exception. But it is still a infinitely better test than the GRE for yes. judging something. The GRE is not good for judging anything. And no, so you the SAT, then you'll be good at the GRE. That's it. I mean, and also the SAT is a bad judge. Yeah. SAT is a bad judge. I think of the grad school te- GMAT. I also think is not particularly great. Other than the medical ones, the LSAT actually, I think, is better. It does actually at least test some of the critical thinking knowledge that you right. theoretically. 
All tests are bad. Everything's a scam. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> We're all free. Be free. Strip yourself of your clothes and run into the woods. Be a squirrel. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, unfortunately, I have to edit this podcast. It's gone on too long. All right. Bye, Devin. Thank you for your insight and, uh, and your yeah, love of this you. movie. Thank you for joining us. I love doing this. Anytime you want to have me. Um, Yeah. And also for everybody out there, um, please rate, review, subscribe. Uh, Follow us on Twitter. We are at the CrossCut and on Instagram at the CrossCut pod. Yeah. Next week, we'll talk about something else. We have no idea what yet. So uh, enjoy your weekend, everyone. Bye. Bye.